This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. To begin the show, though, a new poll from Angus Reid Institute shows a majority of Canadians, including baby boomers, agree that today's young people have a harder time starting out in life than previous generations did. 53% of respondents said millennials have it harder than past generations. 47% disagreed and said starting out has always been hard and young people today are just soft. And while those under the age of 35 are most likely to agree that millennials have it tougher, a slim majority of aging baby boomers agreed, with slightly more than 50% of those aged 55 and over agreeing with that statement. One other stat from this survey before we get to our first guest. If there's one age group that doesn't sympathize with the plight of the millennials, it's the Gen Xers, who came after the boomers and before the millennials. They faced a tough job market in Canada in the 1990s, and only 41 to 47% of the Gen Xers agreed that millennials have it tougher. Interesting stuff as the age brackets and the different generations go to war on who had it tougher. Well, let's talk to one of the experts. He's a senior executive financial consultant with Investors Group, Don Fox. Don, how are you? Doing great. How about yourself? Not too bad. Long time no chat. Has the summer treated you well? It's been great. Yes, very good. I, uh, I uh, unfortunately couldn't make the golf tournament today. We had uh, the regional directors out there and uh, Andy Lister's out there. Excellent. We've got Thompson and the gang, and uh, they got a nice hot day. But uh, yes, uh, at least hey, you know what? It's not raining. It's a nice day to be out the golf course. I'm sure they're having fun. So, what do you make of this poll that says uh, the majority of Canadians, including baby boomers? agree that today's young people have a harder time starting out in life than previous generations. Are you seeing that? Are you noticing that when you're meeting with clients? Well, you know, actually, off, off the top, I, you know, I've got kids. I, they're just in that age group right now yep. myself. So you, you kind of think back to, you know, I'm a 1985 graduate. And it wasn't exactly easy. And, and in fact, at that time, uh, it was around a 10% un, uh, unemployment rate. And currently, we're sitting at around 6%. Now, I know that uh, the youth um, from 615 to 24, their unemployment rate is around 13% right now. It's 12 to 13. So I would suggest that the employment statistics are very similar to when I graduated. And they, t- they had a nice little boom. But you're right about, I think you called Generation Xers in the 92 recession. They actually bumped right back up to over 10% unemployment again. So we do go through this kind of web and flow. Uh, generally speaking, uh, not necessarily the the new you know people, the new grads, but people that have been out in the workforce, say past twenty five, uh, over twenty five age group, they're doing pretty darn good right now. They're 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 right, right now in a in a very robust economy, so they're able to find jobs, and it, it is the ones under the twenty five that might have it slightly harder than when we you know when we graduated and those those current day pressures include uh you know whether uh, you go to post-secondary education or not and in, and even if you do it is hard to find a job especially in your field of study they have mounting debts because of the education that they have acquired uh and if they don't get a job in their field they're probably uh, being paid less doing something else um you know the cost of inflation has gone up you know gas prices food prices uh, rent or housing is is much higher, obviously, today than it was in years past. There's a lot of things going on that these new millennials are dealing with. Yes, but we did too. Um, <laughs> <I'm>, 
I kind of look at those numbers and says, absolutely, I, you know, things do cost more than, say, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, but I, I worked it out that when, you know, when we were graduating, uh, kind of a, a, a decent job. Say you're, you came out of a, a commerce degree and you're going to get your first job. Somewhere around that 25000 a year job to maybe if you did really well, it was 30000 a year. And 25 kind of seemed to be the norm when, when I was graduating back in 85. So I, I took that and looked at the inflation rate, and that would be equivalent to somebody would have to graduate right now with about a 45000 a year job right now. And that's, they're not quite doing that. So they are, they are finding the average, average uh, job right now is more like around the 41000 so they have fallen slightly behind to where we were, say, 30 years ago. And again, you could take little timelines all over the place. I just happen to say, okay, um, let's look at a 30 year ago. I was at the very, very tail end of the baby boom, which didn't most of the, the previous part, the, the main part of the baby boom got a lot of the easier so-called jobs or found jobs easier. Um, but near the tail end, you had to be a little bit more, say, uh, creative in trying to find work. You had to definitely uh, do a lot of the things that I'm finding the millennials have to do now is and not necessarily get exactly what's in your field, maybe be more flexible. Um, I'm seeing a lot of similarities, actually, to, the, to now as, as there was in 1986, say. We're chatting with Don Fox, Senior Executive Financial Consultant with Investors Group here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Scott today. Um, I'm going to assume that the majority of your clients or many of your clients still have their millennial children at home, and that is obviously creating a ripple effect in terms of their savings for the future, right? Yeah, this, it's a bit of a double whammy there. And what, what I'm finding is, you know, if back in, say, our day, so to speak, and I'm 53 years old right now, if you stayed at home, it was almost normal for anybody staying at home, they would pay room and board. And now I'm finding that seems to be definitely the exception in the rule, so that if a, if a child is staying at home after they've graduated, you know, university or college, and looking for work, I generally find that the, the parents are still paying for everything. And that's a big swing. That, that's, just a, that's a different mentality that the parents have in our gen- you know, currently than what my, say, my parents were doing back then. So it is making it harder for the, you know, the 50-plus with kids at home to save for retirement and to retire or live the lifestyle they wanted to lead. So no question that's a, that's a difference. Um, and the other, the other part is, you know, back in 1985, you know, it was around 27% of the people, according to this article, that still had uh, kids living at home. Now you're looking at about, you know, closer to 40% with kids um, 18 to 34 years old living with their parents still. So that's a, um, a very big switch over the past, uh, say, 30 years. And you mentioned that parents are paying for everything, and nowadays, compared to whether it was the 80s or 70s or even beforehand, there's a lot more things to pay for in the home, i.e. mobile phones, internet service, TV, cable bill, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no no question, Rick. I, in fact, I had this conversation with a client just a couple of days ago and saying, you know, you, you've got this, this cost that we weren't, that didn't even exist, uh, say, 20 years ago, and that is your, your, your cell phone, your cable, which you have now, but it's packaged with all the other channels. That you, there wasn't that many choices before, and the Internet. So you're looking at a bundle that's costing around 200 to $300 a month that in the old days you had a phone, which was maybe 25 30 bucks, and you had cable that was 
maybe 30 bucks. Mm-hmm. So a massive increase in, and this is considered the norm. Um, so to have this extra $200, say $150, $200 a month, well, that's just for yourself. Never mind if you have kids that you're still paying for their mobile de- devices on top of that. And the other side of the equation is these parents of millennials might have their own parents who have health care needs, and, and so they're getting it from both sides. Yeah, the sandwich generation, uh, absolutely. You're getting um, your time, for one thing, is, is getting squeezed because after you're done work, you're quite often having to look after or visit or concern yourself with certain needs that your parents as they're aging. And then at the other end of the coin, you, you've got... Uh, you know, kids that have vehicles and need to be maybe still have to be driven or make arrangements for. So your your time's getting very much uh, tightened up in terms of what extra time you do have. And of course, there's there's cost to all this too. So a little different um, with having the you know the stay at home kids. And do I say I I don't necessarily think this may be a bad thing if they're if they're using their money to try to save for that first home as opposed to renting. So there could be a big benefit to this. But it all depends on what the children are are doing in terms of uh, their own money. Don, great insight today. Uh, Thanks for the time, and uh, enjoy the rest of the week and the weekend. Thank you, Rick. Anytime. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Pokemon Go. Popularity on uh, this game has been absolutely incredible. From kids going outside again to viral videos, to songs like that on YouTube. It's arguably the most popular thing since, well, let me think, Tickle Me Elmo, that was crazy popular back in the day. The Sony Walkman, that was a huge craze. How about Cabbage Patch Kids? That was mammoth as well. They might all pale in comparison, though, to Pokemon Go. If you have it, you probably love it. You're probably outside right now trying to catch... Pokemon. If you don't have it, and you're wondering, what is all the fuss about? Well, you're about to get an inside peek on what Pokemon Go is all about and why it's so crazy popular. Derek Ash is the co-founder of the Hamilton Pokemon Go Trainers and joins us now on the Scott Thompson Show. Derek, how are you? Oh, I'm well. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us today. I know you got a busy uh, schedule, and I know you are uh, out and about training people, catching Pokemon. It's a whole lot of fun, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. So what is Pokemon Go? Tell us about it. What, what, what are we doing here? Pokemon Go is an augmented reality uh, location-based game where you go around and you uh, catch Pokemon. All right. For those who have no idea what Pokemon is, what, what is Pokemon? Pokemon are pocket monsters. They are a fictional Japanese cartoon that uh, originated back in the uh, mid-90s. So how does it work? People obviously have their mobile phones, and they are interacting with, um, as, you, as you said, an augmented reality, right? Yeah, that's correct. So they're going around and, and doing what with their phones? Uh, they're actually walking around following themselves on a map, and uh, they're just looking for Pokemon, which will spawn randomly in the most spontaneous areas, actually. It's pretty cool. <laughs> so how do these Pokemon get on the map and, and get in our community? Um, you, you actually have a radar you follow, okay. and as you um, encounter them, you, you have like a little radar around your body that you follow, and they just pop up. 
So let's talk about the nostalgia craze because, I mean, uh, the inventors of this game obviously have uh, a tradition that dates back, as you said, to the to the cartoons, to the anime back in the 90s. So there's a, a lot of history there. They have, you know, a big segment of a certain population who have been following Pokemon for at least a couple of decades now. I don't think this would work quite as well with just being, you know, a new game because it has that Pokemon attachment that is really, you know, fueled kind of the craze, right? Well, yeah, basically, uh, back in, uh, I believe it was 1997, uh, Pokemon was released on the Game Boy console. And now, taking it back, every player I've, I've seen is well over 20, for the most part. Yeah. Well, it's funny, because yeah. my kids, who are aged 11 and 15, are right into it. And it's probably because my son has been watching Pokemon on Netflix, and uh, he watched it when he was just a little, like, a wee little kid. Uh, so he's kind of rediscovered Pokemon, and now with Pokemon Go coming out, uh, it uh, it's really worked well for him. So here's, you know, here's a, a kid who's well under 20 uh, getting in on the fun, too. It's kind of fun to see. Oh, yeah, it's excellent. My kids, actually, we all go together. We've been walking everywhere and it's cool because they get to learn my generation of pokemon now there's over well like 700 and uh it's only the original 151 wow so yeah you mentioned you know families coming together there's there's maybe a greater sense of community with pokemon go players kind of interacting right that whole social experience oh yeah it's outstanding i mean any hour of the night you can go to like a landmark or a park and you see tons of people everybody's sharing interacting and I've never seen anything like this before. And, you know, the the song that we played in the intro music, and, and you mentioning, you know, just going out with your kids, you, you know, kids are actually going outside again. Yeah, it's only been like 10 years. <laughs> Probably <laughs> and, longer uh, than that. Yeah, I, I, it's just crazy. Everybody's off the couch exercising. It's great fitness. Uh, there's people who have already walked over 100 kilometers in their game. Wow. There are, obviously, as we've seen uh, over the last few weeks, uh, a number of safety concerns. You know, th- there was a car in, in Dallas where the driver was playing Pokemon Go as he was driving and clipped, actually, a police car and was quoted on one of the uh, the uh, police officer's uh, uh, cameras that he was wearing that he said, um, uh, you know, this is the last time I'm playing Pokemon Go while I'm driving. So, and, and there have been some other incidents as well. So people should be careful. Oh, definitely. In the, in the beginning of the game, it actually tells you to stay aware of your surroundings. And the game's actually based mainly on walking. There are functions of the game that will not work when you are in a vehicle. Yeah. Yeah, it's something like 20 kilometers an hour, 20 miles an hour, that it, it shuts down or something? Yeah, something like that. With all these people now interacting, getting active, being in the community, making it, you know, like a family fun night, are local businesses seeing some benefits as well? Oh, yeah, they have to be. There's um, a thing in the game called a Pokestop where you walk to and it triggers a little blue thing. Basically, some of them are on historical landmarks and some are on local businesses. Therefore, people are going in Ah. and or learning stuff. That's cool. That's very cool. So where are some of the hot spots in town? The hottest spots in town? Ooh, I'd say uh, Gore Park, Gage Park, Battlefield Park, Bayfront Park, City Hall. That's awesome. That Most of them are at parks because you have a lot of area, a lot of room. You can run around like crazy people and, and catch Pokemon. Yeah, there's no traffic. It's safe. You know, it's really nice. We're chatting with uh, Derek Ash, co-founder of the Hamilton Pokemon Go trainers here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Scott. If you want to follow Derek and the gang, go to at Pokemon Go Ham 
at Pokemon Go Ham and uh, and on Facebook, Hamilton Pokemon Go Trainers. Let's quickly talk about the social media aspect that you guys are doing and with a particular emphasis on Facebook because it was on the page earlier today and it's fantastic. You're interacting with people all over the place. Oh, yeah. The, the, uh, the people joining the group is way overachieved like, compared to what we thought it would have been. Like People are just joining r- randomly. We're meeting new people as we go. For... Uh, our group, we're out, we're going to be hosting an event, which is uh, we're going to do a food drive at Cage Park for our second meet. Before the game launched, we had our first, and it was an overwhelming amount of support that came out. Um, so what's going to happen at that August 1st event? Uh, August 1st, we're going to drop a bunch of lures, which lured the Pokemon to the Pokestops, and Gage Park has tons. Hmm. So we figure we're going to get everybody out, everybody's going to have a good time, and hopefully we can raise food for a local food charity. And is there, I'm not sure how it works, I haven't played the game myself, but is there competition to catch, like if there's a Pokemon at a Pokestop, is there just one there until someone catches it, or is it there for anyone who goes to that stop? I believe they're time-based, and uh, anybody in that area can actually catch that Pokemon. Okay, so, to their collection. so if two people are going to you know store X and they get there at the same time, it's not that one's going to catch it and the other won't. That's correct. Okay. make it fair for everyone. But there is competition in gyms. There are gyms in the city. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. They appear on your map, and you go and fight other Pokemon there. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. And, yeah, there's three teams. You basically try to get your team to the top. Right. So, uh, co-founding the Hamilton Pokemon Go trainers, are you, in fact, training people to play this game as well, or, or, or teaching people how to play the game? If people have questions and they want to learn how to play the game, myself or our other admins uh, would gladly help with any questions. Okay. Are there any rare Pokemon that people are trying to catch? Yeah, I believe there's five to seven Pokemon that are not actually in the game yet, or they are region-locked to a a continent. Hmm. So I believe they'll have events soon enough where people will be competing against one another to try to get these Pokemon. Okay, i got to ask, because my son was talking about this the other day, and I'm not sure if it's just a rumor or if it's fact, that there is a Pokemon on top of Mount Everest. Oh, I, I believe that was just a meme. Somebody just created <laughs> Was it? I okay. Mean, it could be possible. It could be. That'd be rather dangerous and challenging. <laughs> Very. <laughs> uh, all right, Derek, uh, Thanks for the time. Best of luck with the Hamilton Pokemon Go trainers and uh, the Facebook page, and again on Twitter, at Pokemon Go Ham. Uh, good luck with the event at Gage Park on August 1st. Is there a particular time people should be showing up? Yeah, it's going to go till like 11 p.m. from 2 p.m. Okay, so. 2 to 11. Excellent. Yeah. Have Thank fun. Thank for having us, and everybody's welcome to join. Yeah, have fun, stay safe, thanks for the time, and enjoy the rest of the day. You as well. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield called our next guest one of the world's 50 brightest minds. Her name is Darlene Lim, and she currently leads scientific exploration programs at the NASA Ames Research Center at Moffett Field, California. Lim was the keynote speaker earlier today at the SHAD 2016 event at McMaster University, and she joins us now. Darlene, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for joining us today. I have to ask, what is it like to be called one of the world's 50th brightest minds by Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield? Oh, it was an honor. It was very, very humbling. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just truly a wonderful surprise. Did that come as a surprise? Are you guys friends? How did that come about? <laughs> 
it's always a surprise when somebody gives you an honor of that teacher. <laughs> you know, it really is because you're just kind of in it, you're getting your job done, and then um, that's a, it's a really wonderful um, event to have happened in my life. And so, and of course, it was very generous that Chris has offered me up in that way. So it was a uh, wonderful situation. No doubt about it. Before we learn more about what you said this morning, I just want to briefly touch on what SHAD is all about, because you were involved uh, way back when. What is it? What is SHAD? So SHAD is a STEM-focused summer program for high school students. And STEM, of course, is science, technology, engineering, and math. And there are kids that I've met today from all over the country who apply to this very you know, competitive program, and then they get accepted. And then when they get to these, um, to these events, you know, the SHAD event for a month, to get this opportunity to do an incredible deep dive into a bunch of different STEM topics. And they, they get to get posted you know, at, a, at universities across the country, and one of the host universities is McMaster. And when they get here, they get to work in groups, they have to apply design thinking principles, and they're allowed to fail, but then they're really highly encouraged to kind of pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and continue to solve the problems that are put in front of them. So that's an incredible experience to have as a young um, a, a young person, and then, you know, will carry forward and, and be a very, very valuable skill as they enter into whatever career path um, they engage in as they go forward. Can you give us an example of what the students uh, at Shad at McMaster have been doing, or, or maybe what you did when you were with Shad? So I was at Shad Valley, and, um, and I apologize. Hopefully I'm hearing your question right. It's a bit noisy where I'm at with all the kids and so forth, but I attended Shad Valley in 1989 and uh, at the University of Calgary. And so even then, you know, I've met a lot of really wonderful kindred spirits, but a diverse group of people from all across the country. And they each had an interest in, in, they're just generally very curious people. They had an interest in all the STEM topics, but they were also out, outdoorsy, and they were fun, and they loved the arts. And so, it, you know, and all these people have gone on to some very interesting careers. And so for me, I feel very, very fortunate, very privileged to be able to, be asked to come back and meet um, the shadow of, of this generation and and um, you know they're just absolutely incredible and such motivated wonderful students and um, it just bodes really well for Canada's future and in, in terms of being innovative and leading the world on that front how did shad impact your future I'm sorry go ahead how, how did shad impact your future and your direction and what you wanted to do right so you know again coming back to the ability to get access to um, to knowledge. It, it, that's really what Chad provided me with. Is they gave me access to um, STEM topics that I didn't know about, you know, and, and so it just went above and beyond in so many ways from what we were getting in, in our high school curriculum, which was interesting, but then this took us to a, a new level where we got to meet with university researchers and see what they were doing, and suddenly you realize, wow, the world is really big, and there's so many neat things you can get into that are um, you know, applied in directions that one couldn't even imagine before. So you get to imagine asking questions that are of value to you intrinsically as a person. And that's a very exciting thing as a kid, because I think every kid has stored, stored up questions. I certainly did. Um, and then to find an outlet for that was, was wonderful. And Chad, you know, when I connect the dots backwards in time, it certainly had an impact on me um, in terms of um, pushing me forward on the path that I'm on right now. Darlene Lim is our guest, Principal Investigator at the NASA Ames Research Center in uh, Moffettfield, California. Uh, I understand your speech today focused on your latest groundbreaking research at two volcanic sites in Idaho and Hawaii. Tell us about that. Sure. So I work um, in what are called research analogs, and these are places on Earth that approximate conditions in space or other planets, you know, in places like Mars. 
And so we conduct science in, in, um, in the Arctic, in the Antarctic, underwater, and as you mentioned, in these volcanic settings in Idaho and Hawaii and elsewhere. And the research, the science that we conduct is relevant to our understanding of life in extreme conditions on Earth and, uh, and elsewhere throughout our solar system. But the added twist to our research is that we conduct it under what, what's called simulated Mars mission conditions. So that's a really exciting thing for us to be involved with because we're interested in figuring out how to enable future astronaut explorers who will go to the surface, to the surface of Mars, how do we enable them to, to do science and to make some really groundbreaking discoveries? And what are all the, the, the support, what is the support network that they need um, in place in order to do their jobs to the best of their capacity? How do you make those sites Mars-like? So they are intrinsically Mars-like in terms of the science. But the thing is, so as an example, on these volcanic sites, they are basalt-rich. Basalt is a type of volcanic rock that we find in Idaho, in Hawaii, in these specific areas, um, and also on Mars. And so our, our research question is driven by wanting to understand what type of microbial life lives associated with the basalt um, in these earth science settings, in these earth settings. Um, and we take that knowledge as a baseline so we can extrapolate what we understand from the earth over to places like Mars, you know, to the planet Mars and and in the context of its past and present environment. Um, but the, the thing we cannot simulate anywhere on Earth is uh, the, the, you know, the physical conditions that currently exist on Mars and that future astronauts will have to contend with. The low atmospheric pressure, the low temperatures, um, you know, the, the lack of, of, of breathable um, air uh, to them. And so we, there is no perfect analog on Earth that simulates Mars. That's why we're completely different planets. But what you can do is go to areas on Earth that give you, whether it's a scientific or an operational, you know, comparison, um, it, it gives you that analog so you can actually generate a baseline understanding of what it's going to take to support people um, on, their, on this pretty challenging endeavor. Mars has obviously been a big focus of space enthusiasts pretty much ever since we landed on the moon. We were looking for the next target, basically. Are we ever going to get to the red planet? Yeah, that's a great question. So currently, you know, if you go to the NASA website, you'll see that there's a journey to Mars vision that's in place. And the, the timeline takes us to 30 to 35 years from now um, to have a human land on the surface of Mars and, and walk around and conduct their work. And, um, you know, if you're an old-timer in the industry, you've known that that 30 to 35 year mark has been there for some time. But I think what's very different about where we, the time that we're operating in right now and, um, and where we've been in the past is that it's, it's very interesting. There is a broad research network that is entrenched, that is hard at work addressing, you know, this vision to get humans to Mars from a variety of perspectives. And we have individuals like Elon Musk, who's the CEO of SpaceX, who, you know, himself, on a very personal basis, is pushing towards this goal, this objective of getting getting humans to Mars. And so it's a neat confluence of, of different energies that are happening right now that are pushing us in a very motivated way towards this journey. And so it certainly won't be easy. It's not a slam dunk, but um, this collective momentum and enthusiasm for the to- for the topic is is significantly different than than um, where we've been in the past. We're chatting with uh, Darlene Lim, principal investigator at uh, the NASA Ames Research Center down in California, here on the Scott Thompson Show on AM nine hundred CHML. When do you think, if everything goes according to plan, when do you think humans will get to Mars? So the the. Um, perspectives that NASA has is probably in about 30 to 35 years. But, you know, again, um, there are a lot of activities that are going on right now in, a, in the commercial sector as well as in the research sector that 
may affect that, that time frame. And so there's a question of when is the, the absolute, you know, first time frame in which we'll see a human set foot on Mars. That's in the 30, 35 um, year time frame. And then there's the question of will that be a sustainable endeavor? Can we actually have those journeys continue um, into perpetuity? And so that's another question that, that uh, is completely different and will take some more time after that. Um, so I think, you know, those are, are the time frames that are put on the table right now, and there are other destinations in between that we, we may find ourselves at, including the moon and other deep space um, uh, midpoint destinations to explore. So it's pretty exciting times that we're, we're involved in right now. Is the biggest obstacle getting to Mars just the time it takes to get there? That's one of many obstacles. Um, you know, broadly speaking, it's a very challenging um, and lofty goal for sure. So certainly, as you mentioned, it takes a lot of time um, given current propulsion systems to get there. So, you know, it can take you about 10 months, uh, 9 to 10 months to get to the surface of Mars. Um, and then to um, actually wait it out on Mars, it could be about 500 days of, of operational time on the surface before you would be lined up and ready to go again to come home back to Earth. So it's a long journey. It could be three years, three-plus years for any humans to go and come back um, from Mars. Um, but, there, are, you know, aside from just the length of that, um, of that journey, there are other things that, that are challenging, such as the radiation that one will incur on the way to Mars and on the surface of Mars, such as the basic fact that the people that go will be away from their families and they'll get further and further disconnected from the people on Earth because not only are they moving away from them in, in distance, but also in time. Um, there is a communication lag that happens as a consequence of the orbital parameters of the two planets, whereby if you send a signal from Earth, it takes at minimum five minutes, sometimes up to 20 minutes, to actually reach the surface of Mars, and then vice versa. So you consider that, like you and I are having this conversation right now, but can you imagine if you asked me a question and then it took me five minutes to even receive it, and then I have to take a few more minutes to think about it, and then you won't get that for another five minutes. So it's a very different operational paradigm to consider. It will have an impact on the way that we design our, our architectures for our missions and the way that we design um, what are called extravehicular activities. So when we send humans out onto the surface of Mars, how, how the procedures that they follow. And it will also affect the psychology of the mission itself and the human factors um, that get affected by, by this distance and time um, you know, separation will be, will be pretty... Um, pretty challenging and, and something we need to be addressing it right now in order to be prepared for the journey to happen in 30 to 35 years. Well, it's a good thing you're not doing this interview a while on Mars, as we'd have about five minutes of dead air, so I'm glad you're in town. Um, <laughs> why, why is it important that we get to Mars? So, you know, everything about this idea, this journey excites me, and I think there are going to be discoveries that we make that, that will come from a scientific scientific from an exploration and also from a social standpoint. And that will have an impact in so many different ways on our lives in a direct and indirect manner. Um, humans are innately curious, and this is really one of the, you know, most incredible journeys that one can imagine. And um, so, you know, I think that there are a lot of exciting aspects to this mission, to this goal um, to consider going forward. Darlene, thanks for the time. Uh, best of luck with the continued research that you're doing, and uh, hopefully one day we'll, we, we will see a man on Mars. That'll be a lot of fun. Okay, thanks a lot. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. What a night last night in Cleveland. I mean, there was everything and more packed in at the Republican National Convention for us to consume and fill our bellies 
full of joy. <laughs> whether, whether you like or hate Donald Trump, that was a fun night. Booze filled the convention hall in Cleveland as one-time presidential candidate Ted Cruz finished his primetime speech to Republican activists. The jeers rained down after the Texas senator refused to endorse Trump, now the official GOP presidential nominee in his address. We will unite the party, we will unite the country by standing together for shared values, by standing for liberty. God bless each and every one of you, and God bless the United States of America. So the crowd is booing, is jeering, and um, probably about 20 seconds after all this booing and jeering, they started cheering because Donald Trump had entered the arena, per se. And uh, they started going crazy. Hey, here's the next president of the United States of America. What really set off, and especially the New York delegation where Donald Trump is from, is that Cruz told supporters to vote their conscience and not stay home for the general election in November. Not once did... Ted Cruz say, vote for Donald J. Trump. And hence the booing. Because after a while, you're waiting for this endorsement and it doesn't come. And the New York delegation, first and foremost, is like, wait a minute here. He's not going to endorse. Let's start booing him. All right, let's go down to Cleveland and covering the Republican National Convention, doing a fantastic job at that is Andrew Lawton, host of the Andrew Lawton Show on sister station AM 980 down in London, and we join Andrew in Cleveland. Andrew, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well, Rick. How are you? Not too bad at all. Thanks for joining us once again today. Again, fantastic job all week long. Are you having fun down there? Well, I, I don't know if fun is the word. There's <laughs> certainly a lot to do and a lot to pay attention to, but yeah. the uh, trade-off of that is really long days. So I, I'm glad to be here, though, definitely. So last night, there were a number of different uh, fireworks or, or bombs or really eyebrow-raising incidents probably highlighted by Ted Cruz's speech. Yeah, I think Melania Trump must have sent Ted a big, huge, giant gift basket <laughs> and a thank you card. It took, uh, took a lot of the attention off of her speech and ultimately has become the highlight of the convention just in terms of source of intrigue and excitement. Now, I certainly wasn't surprised that Cruz didn't endorse Trump, and uh, but, but it sounds like a lot of people were. Well, I, I think a lot of people were, were just optimistic by the fact that he was invited and the fact that he agreed to speak, that that would turn into something at least of a tacit endorsement, not what ended up being, not a, a condemnation, but certainly a, a clear and clearly defined position that he is not supporting Trump's candidacy. It almost sounded like Ted Cruz wrote that speech for, uh, you know, him to be considered the presidential nominee. It was almost like, you know, that was the final speech of the convention. Like, here we go, guys. Get out and vote. Vote your conscience and, and you know, support me. Yeah, I mean, he might have had that speech, like, I'll be at a modified version in a drawer from, like, six months ago. Yeah. And he's like, all right, well, now's my chance, guys. So i got to <laughs> dig it out. What was interesting, though, is that, uh, Trump actually didn't know the speech was coming. Trump had been given a heads up. He said on Twitter about two hours earlier, Cruz himself confirmed today that uh, Donald Trump was aware of it. Hmm. And ultimately, it, it was interesting then and explained a little bit about why Donald Trump probably decided decided to crash it in the middle. Does this, um, 
I guess, re-energize the Trump faction, or are more people trying to poke holes in, in what they're trying to achieve here? I think it has certainly uh, proved what the Trump campaign and the Trump supporters have thought for a while now, which is that, you know, Ted Cruz can't be trusted. That's their position on it here. Uh, it also showed that overwhelmingly the crowd is there to support Donald Trump. When the boos that Cruz was getting outweighed the applause he was getting. I think even though there might be some division in the ranks of the Republican Party and delegates, it showed that that division is still heavily skewed towards Mr. Trump. What did you make of uh, Mike Pence last night? Uh, What did I make of what, sorry? Mike Pence. Oh, Pence. Well, again, he's one who I thought did a phenomenal speech. He had some self-deprecation there. He was, uh, you know, really, really on point and on message, but understood sort of what he needed to do to resonate with the voters. But I feel bad for him because here's a guy he's well-respected, well-liked. He's sort of liked in the Republican establishment and in the so-called Tea Party movement. And now no one's talking about his sort of first entry onto the national stage because of the Ted Cruz incident here. Going forward, though, and during the, uh, what's going to be a very intense and I think mudslinging kind of campaign, is he the perfect ying to Donald Trump's yang? I think he is in a lot of ways, because Donald Trump, remember, has lost a lot of the support on the right. I mean, we had the Never Trump campaign, which was a movement from the right. We've had other conservatives that have been criticized here. And if you can't hold on to your base, there's no way you can win an election. So he needs to get Mike Pence and has uh, just to, to hold on to conservatives and say, yes, I have a guy who's experienced. I have a guy who's got conservative credentials. And I have a guy who has executive experience, because, I mean, Mike Pence as a governor has been very popular and also as a, as a congressman for, I think, about six terms. So I think it is important. Uh, there were a few options. Pence was far better than Gingrich to accomplish that. Mm-hmm. I thought Newt did a pretty good job, though. Uh, but, but Newt also brings a, a fair bit of baggage with him yeah. as well. I mean, he, he's, he's part of that old guard, which I think is a little bit damaging just because of uh, just the nature of, of where the Republicans are trying to get their support from. And also, I mean, his, his multiple marriages don't help shore up those family values voters, which are uh, so heavily ingrained in the Republican uh, voting coalition. I thought another great speech of the night, and, you know, apart from the Ted Cruz one, which I really enjoyed, probably because they were booing and it really got the fireworks going, was Eric Trump, one of uh, Donald's sons. He was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, the Trump kids have all done really well this week, and I think they've proven not only are they fairly polished as a family, but I think they've also shown that this is a family effort. I mean, when Trump gets off on the campaign trail, he's not limited to one location because he can have him in one city, Ivanka in another city, Eric, Don Jr., Tiffany Trump, maybe even Melania. And he's covering six times as much ground as Hillary Clinton will be because these people all carry that Trump name, which, let's face it, is a brand in this case. You mentioned Hillary Clinton. The uh, Democratic uh, National Convention goes next week in Philadelphia. Are you expecting any fireworks there? Uh, not as part of the uh, convention officially. I mean, my sort of one prediction, just liking sort of these political theater uh, situations, is whether Donald Trump decides to make an appearance in Philadelphia next week. So that's purely <laughs> speculative at this point. I wouldn't put it past him, though. That would be nuts. Wow. Andrew, thanks for the time today, and uh, enjoy the uh, the final night later on tonight. Thanks a lot, Rick. You have a good one. You too. Andrew Lawton, host of the Andrew Lawton Show on AM 980 in london or chorus affiliate down in london um yeah if there were fireworks last night there's probably going to be a few tonight when the donald gets up 
and uh, Anne starts speaking as well. I do have an audio bit that I'm going to play here. Saturday Night Live, we know, is on a summer break, but the weekend update guys aren't giving the Republicans a break. They did a live weekend update special from Cleveland that last night, and this is just a snippet of it. Scott Bayo, Got him. Antonio Sabato Jr. Couldn't get senior. One of the Duck Dynasty dudes. Probably the best one. I mean, get this, they were all available. What? All their schedules lined up? What are the odds that they all got the same day off? Crazy. <laughs> Pretty hilarious. Um, by the way, there's a host of celebrities who are going to be at the DNC, the Democratic National Convention, in Philly next week, including pop singer Demi Lovato, actress Leah Dunham, or Lena Dunham, uh, actor Tony Goodwin. They'll be joined by um, America Ferreira, Eva Longoria, Deborah Messing, NBA Hall of Famer Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So I think the star power at the DNC, as opposed to the RNC, is a little greater. Many of the celebrities campaigned on uh, Clinton's behalf during the primaries as well. Let's stay in Cleveland and get a first-hand look at some of the craziness that is not happening inside the arena, but outside the arena and how uh, downtown Cleveland has been affected. Heidi Thompson House is a vlogger and uh, is in and about the arena. Heidi, how are you? I'm good, Rick. How are you doing? Not too bad. So what have you seen in and around the queue? Um, the view is actually, for the most part, pretty peaceful, I would say. Um, as my friend and I were sort of making our way up, most of the protesting was going on outside of public square. Um, lots of police presence, lots of uh, uh, people milling about, lots of, you know, controlled chaos, I would say. Um, as we made our way down to East Forth, though, there was, it was a lot more controlled, um, just tiny, more individual protesting going on through East Forest at that time. Given the the wildness of some of the uh, Donald Trump events leading up to this night, um, there you know were obviously you know uh, incidents in Chicago, violent incidents across the United States. Was there a concern at all with this convention being held in Cleveland that some of that activity, some of that violence would uh, transport itself to where you are? Oh, there was a huge concern about that. Um, I would say they probably increased um, police presence incredibly so, um, especially with the kind of rhetoric that Trump seems to be drumming up. There, there has been a lot. One of the waitresses we were talking to had said that her mom had to shut down her uh, restaurant at West 25th area because there were so many crazy people walking around in camouflage gear hmm. with semi-automatic machine guns just to show that they could have them. So police presence has been really incredible here, amazingly large. Wow, talk about an uneasy feeling, seeing people Mm -hmm. walking down the street with uh, who knows what. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although I would say in in the downtown Cleveland core, close to the queue, people were keeping it pretty pretty low-key, pretty low-key. I didn't see too much of that sort of stuff going on. Most of the protests that we saw, as I mentioned before, were pretty... You know, they were controlled, they were loud, they were getting there, but there was a lot of police around. It almost seemed as though they, they would separate some of the groups from each other, keep an eye on individual different groups, and sort of keep it all under control. It's been a kind of a crazy year in Cleveland. You have the Democratic National Convention, you have the Cavaliers winning the NBA championship. Uh, mm-hmm. Lo and behold, the Cleveland Indians are in first place. I'm not sure, yeah. what, we, I'm not sure what we can do about the Browns, but uh, you know, three <laughs> out of four ain't bad. <laughs> Maybe some of the luck will rub off on them. That would be nice. <laughs> you never know. Are you at all surprised that nothing major has happened? Very surprised. 
Yeah. Very surprised. And I think, uh, from my feeling, Rick, when I was walking about and taking a look around and taking pictures and things, um, for the police presence that we did see, I'm sure there was a ton more that we did not see. Hmm. So I think they have it pretty much on a very, if I can say, relaxed lockdown. As we made our way down to the lakefront area, um, it's close to where Donald Trump is staying um, in through that area. There was a lot more police presence, sharpshooters from most of the top of the buildings. Any of the business buildings around that area had police presence all around and throughout. So it was very well controlled. Can't imagine the amount of planning that goes into an event of this Mm -hmm. size. It must be absolutely outstanding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, And it seems very seamless as well. Yeah. Obviously, you've been following some of the things that have been said at the convention. Um, just maybe a, a quick thought on what you think Donald Trump's going to say tonight. <laughs> who knows? Yeah, who knows? About Donald Trump is you just, you have no idea. <laughs> I mean, he comes in at a time when people never expect him to. He's flying around in his helicopter when you do not expect him to. It's, it's anybody's guess as to what he might say tonight. And I think people will be pretty surprised when they're watching to see what actually happens. What's the sentiment of American voters? I know you don't talk to all of America or, and don't speak for all of America, but some of the things that you've heard from residents of Cleveland, friends, uh, you know, uh, people who are in, uh, you know, interested in politics, what are you hearing from them? The kind of things I'm hearing are they're, they're very confused right now. Um, people who I know who are staunch Republicans really do not know what to do. They don't really like Hillary. And, of course, they're not going to go that route, but they really do not know what to do with Trump. I'm not sure whether Pence being on board with him now is going to change that a little bit because hmm. he does have more political experience. Yeah. But I think for the most part, it could be anybody's, anybody's guess as to who they're going to vote for. There's no doubt about it. This, this should be the most interesting U.S. election in November, probably in the history, because we have such a wild card in Donald Trump. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think anyone has ever seen anything like this before. It's going to be a lot of fun. Heidi, thanks for the time today. Stay safe and enjoy the uh, the final day of the convention tonight. Great. Thank you, Rick. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.